Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Last week I talked about the cross and this week I'm going to talk about the cross too. And what I've done last week and this week is really uh, attempting to look at the, the cross through different lenses. Um, so when I was growing up in church, good church girl, really the only way we looked at the cross was that cross was about the forgiveness of sins and it was about salvation. And that was pretty much the extent to which um, the teaching I received on the cross kind of, that, that was what it all encompassed. But as I have, you know, continued to gaze at the cross and to see Christ afresh with new eyes, I've realised that there is... Like the cross is like a prism. If if um, let me find the next thing. We're really stretching the the AV team today. The cross is like a prism through which you know when we see the pure light of God's love, it refracts into a thousand different ways that we can see. And so there's not just one way we can understand the cross and what God was doing in Christ on the cross, but there is thousands of things we can see when we gaze. At the cross. And so I've talked about the cross is like a prism through which we can say, you know, what is God like and what is God doing? And as it, you know, spreads out, we can just see so many different things. And I put up, um, if we move really quickly to the next one, if I remember. Oh, yeah. This is a quote um, that always challenged me. And it says, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death. The Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. And I used to, I think at times, listen to different people speaking about the cross and speaking with such, with such love and such awe and such wisdom and such insight. And I always used to feel a disconnect because I used to think, Someone told me when I was eight what the cross was all about and I got it in three seconds. How come you at 45, 50, 67 can still be gazing at the cross in awe and wonder? And I realised it was because essentially I was given such a two-dimensional view of what, what the cross was all about and other people seemed to capture some kind of like 5D, if that even exists. Um, think at least seven, all right, of the cross. And like, it's through looking at this, the cross and the crucifixion and what happened to Jesus that paradoxically we had the clearest picture of what God is like. And there's so many different lenses, if you flick to the next one, um, through which we can understand the cross. This is just a bunch of them that I have written up. Um, there's many more. I, I realise, and I think one of the things I just, you know, in last week and this week, just want to, if you can think about anything, if you forget everything that I say, just, just remember this. There is not just one thing going on on the cross. There is not just one thing happening as Jesus was dying on the cross. And in fact, we may never really be able to put into words the magnificence of what God was accomplishing in Christ on the cross. Everything that we say is but an attempt to make sense of something that we don't understand, and it's magnificent. And so the mystery of the cross is that we can endlessly see things that we've never seen before. And as we see them, to be more in awe um, of what God is doing, to feel more loved by the King of the universe, and to be, feel more drawn into the way of 
um, crucifixion and death and resurrection that God calls us to as his followers. So, so last week I talked about the cross's cosmic reconciliation um, and that was fun and it's on the podcast if you missed it and you can listen if you want. And tonight I'm going to talk, ab- <laughs> talk about the cross and scapegoat theory. <laughs> so, um, yeah, flick to the next one. I've got a cool picture. Oh, it's meant to say as the end of <laughs> scapegoating. I don't know what happened to my slide. I probably did that. Um, the cross as the end of scapegoating is what it should say. So, um, so who who has heard of scapegoatness? Sca- has everyone heard of like? Does anyone know where scapegoat theory comes from? Who is the philosopher that d- that came up with scapegoat theory? Rene Girard. Is anyone here a Girardian expert? Because if so, I am going to come out sounding like a complete hack. All right? I am not an expert in Girard. And actually, I, I do know about scapegoat theory. I've read, I haven't read any of Girard. Um, your mum has a bookcase full of Girard. And I, I know, lucky she's not here, because I think there's a lot of flaws in what I'm about to speak about tonight. But anyway, I did think, um, I might just, you know, this week I need to like, you know, just get my head around a bit more of what scapegoat theory is all about. So I was listening to a podcast, not by Rene Girard, who he's now dead, but by one of his like main people. And I didn't understand a word they were saying. So (laughs) um, if you would like to explore more of scapegoat mechanism and how it relates to the cross, you're very welcome to do so. But consider tonight a very baseline introduction of another way to see, another way to see what God is doing in Christ on the cross, another way to be um, in wonder with what God is doing. So, um, scapegoatness, scapegoat theory, we have that language in our Old Testament, in, our, in, in the Jewish Old Testament, the language of scapegoat. So, it's actually part of the Israelite story, and it's attached um, to the Day of Atonement. So what I want to do, am I making that crackle? It just seems random. We'll just let it crackle away. Um, the scapegoats are attached to the Day of Atonement. It's going to get annoying. Is that better? Okay. I'll let them keep going. All right. Um, So we're going to actually read bits and pieces out of Leviticus chapter 16, which is where scapegoating comes from. (laughs) Or it's not where scapegoating comes from, it's where we see it in our our scriptures. Um, And essentially, um, Leviticus 16, as it relates to scapegoat theory, is really this part of the sacrificial system which is where I think God was giving his people a way to deal with their guilt, okay? So I think if you could say anything redemptive, well, you can say lots of things redemptive, but like to try and talk about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament in a, a beautiful way is sometimes difficult. But if we could say anything beautiful about what was going on with the Old Testament and their sacrificial system, it was, was that it was a way for God to help his people deal with their feelings of, of wrongdoing, of guilt, of sin and shame. Because when those things go unchecked in us, it's a bit of a disaster. And so I think what God 
if God gave his people the day of atonement, then it was a way of them processing their guilt and that was a good thing. So reading from Leviticus 16, I've, I have picked and pulled things out so that it makes sense. And so the verses that I've left out, if you want to know what they say, they're all about some of the other sacrifices that were going on on that same day of atonement. But I've just let all of those just fall because it makes sense to just focus on what was happening with the goats. <laughs> um, so this is about the day of atonement. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves, which is just fast. You must fast and not do any work, whether you're native born or a foreigner living among you, because on this day of atonement, will, on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest and you must deny yourselves. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So on this day, the day of atonement, all the sins of the Israelites for the entire year were going to be dealt with in a way that they could know they dealt with their sins before God. So... So this is how it was going to work. For the Israelite community, the high priest is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron, who was the first high priest, is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats. So draw straws, throw a dice, whatever. Um, one, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. He, that, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood, which is a lot of sprinkling everywhere. Sprinkle the blood, sprinkle the blood, sprinkle it on me, sprinkle on that. Like there's a lot of blood. It's, it, it's yeah, it's a bit messy. Um, in this way he shall make, so they have to atone for the holy place, blah, 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 blah. When Aaron is finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and then put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it into the wilderness. So that is what God kind of brought up for the Israelites, this kind of symbolic laying of sins upon this goat and then the goat was to be cast out into the wilderness or into the desert outside of their camp or outside of their city as a way of the people understanding that they don't need to hold on to their guilt 
and they don't need to hold on to their sin and their shame and all their wrongdoing, but somehow they can move it away from themselves and put it on this goat and then that goat can be released. So it was like it was a mechanism by which they were able to distance their guilt from themselves. So it was a helpful, like, logical metaphor for the human condition. Like, what do we do when we feel overwhelmed by our own wrongdoing, guilt, sin and shame and we don't know what to do with it? Well, God gave his people something to do with it. Once a year, you could move it away from yourself and send it out into the wilderness. And in this case, it was like a ritual that allowed them to export their guilt onto an innocent animal. And that animal wasn't slaughtered. That, anima, that animal was sort of just driven out into the wilderness. And who knows what happened to it. Maybe it lived, maybe it died. But the point was that there would be this scapegoat through which they could deal with their guilt. So this image of the scapegoat that we get in, in Leviticus, um, it really powerfully mirrors something that's going on in the human psyche um, that happens across all of us but is a largely unconscious thing. And that is almost like the need for us to project or transfer our guilt onto other people or other things. Most of the time we are just overwhelmed by our own sense of wrongdoing and we don't know what to do with it. And the most natural thing that we can do with it is we just project it onto other people and single people out. So on a personal level, we see this happening in the mythology of Genesis chapter 3 where, you know, God comes to Adam and he says, you know, what's gone on? And what does Adam do? He doesn't own his own, you know, guilt. What does he say? The woman made me do it. He externalizes his guilt onto the woman. And then what does the woman say? The snake made me do it. And this is like the archetype of what humanity does with wrongdoing. Like the archetype is we just struggle to own our own stuff. And it's so much more natural and easy for us to just actually blame it on someone else. Because to look at ourselves and acknowledge our own kind of sense of what's wrong, that's painful. But to point the finger at something or someone else, that's easy. And so that's like an archetype for the, human, the humanness of us, that we tend to want to export and project our sense of brokenness or our guilt or our shame or our fracturedness onto external things. This is the scapegoat mechanism. Um, so... It happens in the personal thing, but it also happens kind of unconsciously or subconsciously. I never really know which is the correct use of terminology. Unconscious, okay. I'm like, unconscious, is that like when you're... Or is subconscious like, I don't know, anyway. Unconscious. Unconsciously, this happens on a community level and on a society level. So this is not just individual, this is like human society stuff. And this is what René Girard was all about. So he was a French philosopher and historian and he wrote about many things that are far too great for me to speak about. But he did write about this scapegoat mechanism and he realised that this scapegoat mechanism is actually foundational for the functionality of groups and societies. So he did research across all kinds of like ancient people groups and what he recognised was the groups that actually, without realising it, were able to do scapegoating, those societies survived. And the groups that 
didn't, without thinking, come up with the scapegoat mechanism, ended up just self-annihilating. Because there's chaos in society and community and if it doesn't have a direction to go, we'll self-destruct. And so the societies that actually manage to figure out scapegoating without thinking, they actually manage to survive. Now, the absolute beauty of this ridiculous amounts of blood and weirdness we see in the Old Testament is that God gives his people an almost more um, magnificent way of dealing with the scapegoat mechanism, which is not to project it on one another, but instead to project it on an animal. So God actually stepped people forward from projecting it towards one another in violence, towards giving them a mechanism by which they could do the very same thing but on an animal instead. So, of course, now in our modern animal rights era, we go, oh, my God, that's awful. But, you know, it's, it's a step forward from, like, annihilating another person or another people group. So God was taking his people forward. So the scapegoat mechanism works like this. Um, the multitude of problems in a group or divisions in a community must be reduced to one problem or one division. So long as it stays complex, we can't deal with that. Ah, we don't know what to do. Society's going down the drain. That's too much for us. But if we can pinpoint it onto one thing, we can focus and we know what to do with it. So the scapegoat mechanism is all about taking chaos and narrowing it down towards one thing. And then we usually the one thing we pick to project this chaos or this sense of brokenness or fragility, you know, onto is largely someone or something or some group that's marginal or weak. Because it's far, we can do that to a marginal or weak person. It's much harder to do it to power. We don't do it to power. So we usually pick someone who's, um, they slightly stand out, they're part of the group but they're odd or they're different and they don't maybe play by quite the same rules as everyone else so it's easy to point the finger at them and say that's the problem. So then like typically what will happen is we then project all of the blame for society's woes and evil onto that one person or that one group which channels all of our chaos and then we, we punish them and we charge them with somehow violating the, the community's taboos or not living up to our values or whatever it is. There's always some kind of charge. And then, like, all the guilt and the punishment is directed to them. And in a sense, they're cast out and blamed for, you know, the group of the whole. And then the sense of communal guilt and fractionedness and fragility that we all feel actually has somewhere to go. And in the somewhere to go, we feel good about ourselves oh, we've done something about the problem, which we haven't actually really done anything about the problem. But we've, we've channeled it onto one thing and that makes us feel good. So there is a feeling of, of goodness about focusing all of this on the scapegoat. There's a sense of peace and satisfaction about this. Um, and the mechanism always works by usually picking on innocent victims or outsiders with no friends. That's how it works. It's... It's always the weak for the strong, the minority for the majority because we've got to keep the strong strong. We've got to keep the majority major. So we'll channel all of our fracturedness onto 
um, onto one thing. So René Girard would say that this mechanism, I know this is very heady, hang with me, I know this is like a, anyway, this is, you should wait and hear what they say, I don't know. Um, Girard would say this mechanism, it, it developed naturally and unconsciously in all cultures and societies and is a huge feature of most religion, okay? And it works by being unseen. So it only works because no one recognises that it's happening. Because as soon as you recognise that it's happening, you can no longer project that blame onto that thing. Therefore, it doesn't work. You don't get your satisfaction and peace. So it only works in its, in its blindness to its working. Um, and he says, no one thought this up. Like, no one, this, this is no one's brainchild. Like, no one was like, wow, this is how we're going to make society work. It just naturally happened and evolved this way. And it always works because we... We don't know we're doing it. So Girard would say, scapegoating is automatic, ingrained, and unconscious. And so the step forward for the Israelites was, this is no longer going to be unconscious. I'm giving you a conscious day upon which you do this once. So God was taking his people forward. But it wasn't the end of the forward movement we needed to make in terms of scapegoating because it still happens. Um, so on a personal level, if I was like, that's the theory. On a personal level, we humans would rather hate or blame almost anyone or anything other than recognise our own weakness, sin and failure. That's, that's the human tendency. We would just rather hate or blame anyone else than actually recognise that maybe I'm part of the problem or part of the problem is in me. And so it's things like, she made me do it, he's guilty, they deserve it, they're the problem, they are evil, the devil made me do it. way this works in religion, a lot of spiritual warfare or a spiritual mindset is an externalising form of scapegoating onto the devil. So if the devil made me do it, I don't have to take responsibility for perhaps what I did or for the gap that's in there. So, that, like, that kind of thing is an externalising. It's not always unhealthy, but it is a scapegoating mechanism. Um, and it's always all about externalising the blame and the problem. On a society level, it's the way we deal with the mess, the chaos and our fragility. We blame that group or we justify the way we treat that group because somehow they're responsible for the problems in society and we need to do something about it. And it's the way our flawed peacemaking works. So we think we can make peace because the violence we do against that group is good, good violence, because the chaos and violence that happens amongst us is bad. So we legitimise the good violence we do to that person or group in order to justify the sense that's happening amongst here. So this is the scapegoating thing. So now I had asked like Luke and Becca if they were able to reveal in any ways in society that they see this happening. Obviously the book is a play on the way we scapegoat refugees. So are there problems in our society? Yes, there is huge problems in our society. Is there inequality of distribution of resource, assets and wealth? Yes. Is that the problem of those boat people? Or is it the problem of the wealthy who won't share? 
well, we can't deal with the wealthy because that would freak us out. But we could blame those people who are going to spread us even thinner than what we are. So we'll blame them. That's scapegoating. That's scapegoating in our society. So I don't know. Did you do you have anything else, Becca? You wanna any? being an American um, and you know like when when you know 9-11 the attacks on the World Trade Center happened I was 19 I was in my university chapel and that's when we had the announcement um, and it was just so that was 2001 very interesting to see how uh, you know like and I'm thinking of the the taboo that was breached as like our freedom as Americans like that there are these people that hate our freedom and, um, and that was like the language that was used rather than like just grief and then asking, okay, why the heck would something like this happen? It's like we went into this outrage and, um, and then we did kind of, and, and the person who, who led that was actually a Saudi Arabian citizen who was living in Afghanistan. And yes, we did attack Afghanistan, but then by 2002, our focus was really on Iraq and Saddam Hussein, and as an American, somehow that was all connected to 9-11 when it really wasn't at all, actually. And I really think that we, because we're not gonna go against Saudi Arabia, <laughs> for one thing. Um, so then we actually launched this massive attack that's still happening, however many years later, you know, um, against this very weak country that's already been under sanctions for a decade and had already gone through our, our war in the 90s and you know even before that so I don't know I guess I'm thinking of that like who is our national enemy and why even thinking of the news like when there is national a national enemy pops up whether it's China or Russia or whoever like why and what's hap actually happening here that we're then scapegoating another people group so what about you, Luke? I only ask these because they, you know what, more probably more than me. They probably could have spoken this morning. Yeah, definitely could have. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, yeah, so I guess one that I was thinking of is one that I have been guilty of in the past. And that, um, I think a lot of this comes out of probably f from a religious point of view, that idea of, um, cl being clean and pure and so particularly in like our sexual ethic I think we've formed this the scapegoat of the LGBTIQ community and that the um, externalising of, of that community as the problem has made us feel that in comparison to that we're clean and pure and healthy and, and I think in um, Australia, there's been a couple of, like, I think when the whole um, referendum, the, the vote for, for same-sex marriage was happening, that was this, yeah, became a bit more obvious that there was the kind of this thing that somehow needed protecting in itself and so we had to keep that pure by keeping um, the gay community not able to access that right. So it was like they were somehow going to be robbing us of the goodness that is entitled to us or that that somehow happened and then I think the other the other way that I've 
kind of seen it happen is that we can see the LGBTQI community somehow is actually nefarious and organised and has there's the gay agenda that that's um, that is somehow working evil in this world and we need to stop the gay agenda and so that becomes even more um, yeah I don't know paranoid I guess about what's actually happening but is a way of solidifying our position as straight and the majority and clean and pure by just putting that on on other people and so I guess as I have in the last however many years come to kind of change my mind about how I think about some of that sort of stuff it's just become more and more just becomes more and more obvious as you think differently those mechanisms happening and when you are friends with people and see the effects on on them of of that as well um, you see the the damaging nature of like it yeah it probably feels good for the people doing the scapegoating but those that are being made scapegoats it is um yeah not very nice yeah this this happens like this is the way our society functions <laughs> um in one way the scapegoat mechanism blame the minority for the majority the majority doesn't have to change you see this in schools in businesses in companies in friendship groups in families like it's a it's a mechanism that works so what one of the things the cross is doing is ultimately exposing the scapegoat mechanism for what it is and it's bringing it out of the darkness and into the light that's what the cross is doing so no longer are we just unconscious about what's going on because consciously when we gaze at the cross we can see the clearest image of what God is and what he was like, he's in the innocent victim of our scapegoat mechanism. Because Christ is the ultimate innocent victim. <laughs> he's the ultimate innocent one. And he becomes the target of our violence and scapegoating. And yet in submitting to our violence and in being scapegoated, he regurgitates that in non-violence and forgiveness. So he's undoing the system by exposing the lie that it's based on. And so Jesus on the cross, if you go back to the old Israelite thing, he's holding the symbolism of both the scapegoats together. He is simultaneously both goats that the lots were drawn for. He's the goat that our sins annihilate and kill. And he's the goat that's cast out of the city and sent into the wilderness to die because you know, the language around the cross uses both those things, a sacrifice and he is crucified outside the city and that sense of, you know, that Christ is, you know, he cries out from the cross, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not that God has forsaken him but he is forsaken because he's cast out into the wilderness and he's like that sense of exposure. Um, and so he, like, um, he doesn't die because God needs him to die. He dies because we need him to die. That's the scapegoat mechanism. <laughs> we need someone to blame for what was wrong. And so God becomes the biggest target. So the cross exposes the sham of 
the scapegoat mechanism. And we see this in the trial of Jesus. Like the trial, the trial of Jesus was an absolute sham on every level. And we see the complicity of every human. Like we can see ourselves in the trial that, that Jesus was in. Not that we were there, but we can see ourselves in the same place. We see ourselves in the place of Pilate. We see ourselves in the place of the high priest. We see ourselves in the crowd as we all cry for the crucifixion of the truly innocent victim. So Pilate, in the trial of Jesus, seems to understand that Jesus is innocent, but he has a crowd of people that he has to please, and they are baying for Jesus's blood, and somehow he needs to keep the peace. And it's much easier to to just kill the one than to deal with the crowd. So Pilate concedes to the crucifixion of an innocent man. And we can all relate to feeling like there's times when we sense this is wrong. I don't think this is right. But we can't deal with the chaos of the crowd and it's much easier to go along with it. And in doing that, we, we crucify the innocent. So we are Pilate, just as Pilate was Pilate. Then you've got, you know the religious leaders who see Jesus as utterly blasphemous and it's easier to, for all the blame to be poured on him than, for, than to allow Jesus to confront their fractured religious system, which is what he came to do. Like you're, this religious system you set up is flawed. It's not what God wants. But instead of dealing with the chaos of that, it's easier just to say, blasphemy, and then slaughter actually the one they worship. So that's the ultimate like thing. Like this is the God they worship. This is the God they sacrifice all their animals to. This is the God they think they're appeasing in the Day of Atonement. And this is the God they crucify. So that's, you know, it's the religious leaders. And there's like that golden nugget in John chapter 11, verse 50, where Caiaphas, the high priest at the time of Jesus, he says words out of his mouth, it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. This is the exposure of the scapegoat mechanism out of the mouth of the high priest. It is actually better that we just crucify this guy than the whole nation perish. And then the crowd, mostly in ignorance, goes along with the whole charade and experiences the catharsis and the peace from channeling all their guilt and blame onto this one guy. Because if we see this one guy blamed and hanging up naked to be crucified, that makes me feel a bit better because I'm not him. And I feel good about that. And so Jesus came to take away our sin and to stop our capacity to commit sin by exposing the lie for everyone to see. And this is the lie. The lie is that if we could just find the one whose fault it is and deal with them, then everything will be okay. That's a lie. The lie is if we can just find the right person to blame and deal with it, we'll all be okay. And God exposes um, that lie and exposes all of human judgment as ultimately tragically flawed. Because if the highest political powers can condemn an innocent man, then human judgment is flawed. And if the highest, most holy, pious religious leaders can kill the God they worship, then surely all of religion is pretty flawed. And if the crowd can go along with gross injustice, then the crowd is ultimately flawed. And so it's the great exposure. Um, and, it, and it reveals that when it comes to judging... We humans are ultimately completely blind and we have no idea what we're doing. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. We don't know how to judge. 
And the cross reveals you don't know how to judge. You think by blaming or shaming or condemning or judging, you'll feel better. But you do not know how to judge. Give up the game. It's, it's flawed. And I'm exposing it for all it's worth. That's the Jesus on the cross. The Jesus on the cross is rescuing us from our entanglement in violence and self-deception. That's, that's the beauty of the cross. Jesus himself told his disciples to be prepared for them to experience scapegoating. And in John chapter 16 and verse 2, Jesus said to his disciples, they'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. That's scapegoating. Like, whenever anybody says they're doing this on God's behalf and that thing involves judgment or punishment, it's scapegoating and it's got nothing to do with God. So what does all of this mean? <laughs> I know this has been pretty cognitive, but it's one of the things that's made me realise some of the magnificence of the cross as it exposes just the humanity and the mess and the things we do to try and fix ourselves. And ultimately, the absolute realisation is we cannot fix ourselves. That, that one there, he, he comes to heal. And we need to stop the attempts to fix ourselves. So what does all this mean? I think it means, in essence, we need to be extremely cautious whenever we catch ourselves blaming someone else for something. And so I, I just want to ask you to consider this on a personal level right now because it's at the pers this, this can operate in us on the personal level. And so what I want to ask you to do is I just want you to think about your last week and I want you to just think, is there any time in your last week where something happened and you consciously blamed someone else for it? You always do that. It's your fault. You made me do that. Like, it's as we become aware of our own blame game that we can undo and allow the cross to undo the games we play. But it's almost like we have to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to be awake, help us to see. Because the scapegoating mechanism only is satisfactory and works when we don't see it. And so it can operate quite sinisterly in our lives and make us feel good because we're externalising all of our blame. It's, it's his fault, it's her fault, it's their fault, it's my kid's fault, it's the weather's fault. <laughs> you know, rather than actually taking an assessment of our own condition and and being able to bring that condition to the healing power of God. Like, it's not to leave us in devastation, it's actually to lead us towards the only one who can heal us. But so long as we play the blame game, we never bring ourselves to the one who can ultimately heal us, therefore we're trapped. So this keeps us trapped. So we need to stop being trapped, expose it, and bring ourselves to the only one who can heal us. So it operates in our personal lives and so it means we need to be very cautious, extremely cautious whenever we feel ourselves blaming someone. So my challenge to you would be listen to your blame language. And if you hear it and you catch yourself, talk to God about it. Um, another thing about this is it means that all of the 
divisions between us and them need to come crashing down in light of the cross. In light of the cross, there is now no us or them. There's no us and them. This is the mechanism we always want to do to deal with stuff, make it about us and them, us and them, left and right, progressives and conservatives, you know, liberal and labour, um, gay and straight, black and white. Like we've got all of these like things that we want to divide the world up in and the cross is the crashing down of, of everything that divides us. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes about this and he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So in Christ, the hostility of us and them gets put to death. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near, and through him we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. So one of the things the cross reveals is that whether it's us and them, whatever we do, us and them, we have to recognise that it's both us and them that find their home in God. Therefore, we can no longer blame them because they belong in God as much as we do. We don't have the moral high ground. There is no us and them any longer and whenever you feel yourself drawn towards us and them dividing you know separating people out you need to stop because the cross has forever brought down the dividing wall of hostility in humanity there is no us and them we are all one in Christ and that's what Paul writes in Galatians 3 28 you know there is no Jew nor Gentile slave nor free nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ all of the categorizations of humanity are bollocks it's you're just all one in Christ so anytime you feel like dividing yourself up into us and them or differences and making you feel good about that because you feel superior, you've got to let it go as you gaze upon the cross because he brings it all crashing down and makes a mockery of us all because none of us know how to judge because if given half the chance, we'd all crucify the king of life. So we're all in the same boat as goats or sheep. <laughs> we're all in the same boat. Yes. <laughs> um, sorry, I, I was just connecting a couple of things that I think is kind of helpful with some of this. In that, like particularly that Ephesians verse, when it talks about the hostility, I think part of the, the amazingness of what Jesus does on the cross in the scapegoat mechanism and exposing it is the exposure of that mechanism. Like it's not that he's just suddenly we're all one and we you know there's you know we're all just happy but he actually exposes and allows us to see that which we couldn't see before and so I think that also models for us how we can approach the other things in life that we scapegoat um, so so a guy Pete Rollins I've heard him talk about this idea that when we see a problem in life often it's not actually a problem it's a symptom that's actually the solution to our problem. So like our problem with refugees is a great example of that, is that we could look at that and go, oh, we've just got this refugee problem. They're coming in, we can't stop them. And 
now we've got all these jails these of refugees and that's if we could get rid of that that would be the problem and then we scapegoat onto that but the problem if we just got rid of that that wouldn't actually get rid of the problem but what happens is that seeing that is actually s highlighting to us what our problem what our problem is and it allows us to reflect on our on our own community and go oh okay we are afraid of those that are different we are afraid of losing our cultural identity we are afraid of duh, 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 and it actually shows us how we can um, Im be improved as a society or like our prison system you look at particularly like you look at the Northern Territory and our indigenous brothers and sisters that literally are the entirety of the imprisoned people in that state and that's not the problem the problem isn't to f is to get rid of those jails but those jails they expose the brokenness of our community and so in seeing that scapegoat mechanism um, you know at play we can see ah oh, that is we the problem has been exposed and in the exposure is the solution and that, I think that's what Jesus does is he exposes he becomes this scapegoat to expose it and to show that we are in need of his healing so, yeah. and the other thing I would say is you know in the mechanism Jesus identifies with the victim so when we take the moral high ground and victimize people the invitation is to look at them in the eyes and see Christ but it's actually him we're doing it to it's it's him we're incarcerating in jails in the northern territory it's him we're bombing in Iraq it's him we're laying all the blame of sexual sin and brokenness of our society at, at his door we're black where it's him that we do this to because that's what we do on the cross so he, he identifies as the victim. And so for anyone who ever experiences scapegoating, and to various attempts, like many of us have experienced that, we, you know, we have an ally <laughs> and one who knows exactly how, I how we feel, Jesus, the one who was put outside of the city with us. So, so to stand at the foot of the cross and to gaze at, at the cross and to stand in awe of what God is doing in Jesus is like it's an invitation for us um, to the humility of our own participation in this system that when we see Jesus as a victim of ju human judgment the ultimate innocent one it invites us both into the repentance of all the times that we judge and it also invites us to see Christ in those people that we judge and yet it's by the hand of the one that we have, are crucified that we receive salvation. So in seeing, like it's, it's, quite, it's quite an amazing thing. The one I crucify is the one who saves me. The one I judge is the one who sets me free. The one I condemn is the one that gives me life. Like this is the <laughs> magnificence of the cross and... It invites us into an undoing, invites us to see, invites us to stop participating in the areas of our society where this goes unchecked. It wakes us up so that we no longer do this blame and shame game. That's what the cross can do to us. Amen? So I know that was really heady.
And maybe that's the first time you've heard scapegoat mechanism talked about. There is good resources out there if you're interested. You're like, wow, I've never seen the cross like this before. There's good places you can go to dive into this a bit more. Some of the language is like, oh, maybe you were sitting there going, I don't know anything about what she's saying. Don't worry. God's got it. He died. All sweet. That's basically all you need to know. But I think this, this kind of thing for me that has helped the cross go from a two-dimensional thing to multicolored, multifaceted thing I can gaze at for the rest of my life. And man, do I need that in my faith. I need something richer and deeper and more magnificent than some two-dimensional stick thing. I need the magnificence of the cross. I need the revelation of who God is to impact me and change me. And seeing this scapegoat thing exposed for what it is invites me into a place where I, I don't want to participate in it if I can see it. So open my eyes, God. Amen. Now, Chris is going to play us a song. Do you want to? Great. It's a scapegoat song. Drew's going to help. Is it a scapegoat song? Do you want to say anything about it? I will say something about it. Okay, so this is... <laughs> <laughs> Scapegoating it on you. Scapegoating it on me. Um, this is a song. Um, is this a song? by the band, Gungor. Um, it's called Us For Them. And it's a, it's a, it is an exposure of scapegoating in song version. So I'm not going to invite you to... I'm just going to invite you to listen because the invitation that takes it a bit further in this song is the step that I haven't taken us to, but now I will because it's in the song. And this is the further step once you get this. If the whole mechanism is exposed by God choosing to die... For instead of choosing us and them, he will die, then the invitation for us is always to die on behalf of them. If it's a choice between us and them, I die for them. If it's a choice between my integrity and their protection, I lose my integrity. If it's a choice between my, rep my reputation or siding with the marginalised, I crucify my reputation and I'm with them. That's the step that Jesus invites us to take. That's, that's harder. It's like if there's ever a dividing wall, the invitation is always lay down my life for the one because the one is always Christ. Yeah? So anyway, that's what I'm going to say about the song. So have a listen. We've got the words on the screen. You can sing along if you know the song. And uh, we'll just finish by just letting this wash over us and <coughs> inviting God to help us see more clearly as this is in our lives. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>